You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guests for episode 191 are Chris Slusarenko and John Moen. They currently perform together in the band Eyelids. They each have long, separate histories in the Portland music scene. Chris started off as a bass player. John started off as a drummer and is actually still the drummer for the Decemberists. But in this project, they both sing lead, songwrite, and play guitar, along with a third guitarist, Jonathan Drews. Before Eyelids, they were working with Robert Pollard from Guided by Voices. Chris was actually a member of Guided by Voices for one album before it broke up. And as we'll discuss in a minute, both of them joined Robert in a recording project called initially The Takeovers. Right now you're listening to a song called My Will from their first album, Bad Football, from 2007. Then that project changed its name to Boston Spaceships for several albums. And when that broke up around 2011, Eyelids was formed. We're going to be discussing Runaway Yeah from Eyelids' new album, A Colossal Waste of Light. And looking back to the first Eyelids album, Seagulls Into Submission, from 854, that's from 2014. Then we'll spend a little time with their pre-Eyelids work. We'll look at Shrunken Head from Chris's band Svelte, from their one album Souvenir, 1996. And Blindfold Follies by John's band The Maroons, from You're Gonna Ruin Everything, from 2002. We'll conclude by listening to Ceremony, from the Eyelids album Accidental Falls, from 2019. For more, please see musicofeyelids.com. Now, I am interviewing both Chris and John here. If you get confused as to who is who, Chris talks first, he talks the most, John's voice is a little higher, they refer to each other a lot, so you can mostly figure it out. But John was the primary writer on the first song we discussed, Runaway Yeah, and Chris on the second song, Seagulls Into Submission. To learn more about this podcast, go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, and to support the effort, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will played a little bit of My Will by the Takeovers from Bad Football 2007, one of eight releases that you guys did with Robert Pollard, starting with it the, around there. Yeah, that's about right. Maybe a, a little more, but, you know, it was a clip rate of two full lengths and an EP a year about. That was a good thing to start with, not only because, well, Guided by Voices is a big deal. Robert Pollard is a genius. But, you know, as the, the thing you were characterizing it as the workshop by which you two were forced to <laughs> work together and communicate very efficiently. That's where our psychic shorthand came in, because I really wanted to kind of go back to how Pollard was working ages ago, where he would have so many ideas that people didn't have enough time to really learn it. So John never heard demos of the songs at all to play the drums. We'd go on the day of and I'd be like, all right, I'm going to play you at once on here. And then we'd talk about it and we'd run through it once and then we'd record it. And usually one or two takes later, it was done. And then we'd be like, all right, here's the next one. And his improvisational inspiration, personality on the drum tracks allowed me then to slow down and write, you know, overly complicated bass lines and things like that. So it was trying to kind of get back to something that had a lot of spark energy in terms of weird inspiration and weird accidents and weird breaks and weird things that we could play off each other. So it was fun. But John, I don't think you remembered any of the songs we did. I have no idea what we did ever. I doubt Robert remembers any of those songs from the, you shared a demo that he sent you versus the thing that eventually came out of it. 
And it just sounded like he's so prolific that you have to have a formula for that. And he's too busy to do interviews like this. He's too busy making music. He has to keep putting out 10 albums a year. So I haven't talked to him, but I imagine based on the demo that you shared that it's slapping something down in a somnambulistic state that might have been improvised at the time, but yet you're sort of very carefully listening to every idea. And now we're going to make it sound like it's intentional and it's structured and it's an avant-garde alternative rock piece. There's a lot of things where you can hear him stop and start the cassette. Like he has a phrase or an idea, not all the time, but on the more complicated tracks and shift gears. And I would always try to honor that, even the weird phrasing of something that was improvisational from him. And also his tape player tended to record run slow. So I would pitch the bass and guitar, just a hair down, not a full step, but just to match it. So I get emails all the time from people who are like, I can't figure this out. And I'm like, that's because this just doesn't exist in the real world. It just sounded (laughs) better to my ear because I would have to obsess over the demo. If I had to transpose it to a traditional tuning, it drove me crazy. I didn't like it. So you both have this background separate that we'll talk about later in the interview. You came together on, well, I guess this was your second collaboration the cavemanish boys the short-lived garage band in 98 99 something like that that you were just backing someone on that together is that the first time you actually played in a band together i believe so it was the first time i mean we've been friends since we were probably 19 or so Mm -hmm. john was in a pretty popular band in portland called the dharma bums they put out three records on frontier and They felt like a real band where I was in things like Swamp Dick and Death Midget and things that were like, we didn't make anything. You know, we made cassettes and stickers, but it was a really close knit scene back then, very small. So we would play together, even if we weren't similar, you know, musically. They were also our age, which was kind of rare and kind of younger than a lot of the bands. And they were funny just as people. And we just hit it off as friends. So jumping forward, again, we'll go back to some of that later. So after this, was it just because Robert decided to actually reform the original Guided by Voices lineup that he stopped doing this Boston spaceship thing? Or was that already a side project on top of three other things he was doing? Delegating 90% of the work to you, it sounded like. When he reformed the original lineup of Guided by Voices, that was, you know, the one that most people knew on record, but didn't have a chance to see. It was smart, you know, like people wanted to see that. And I wanted to see it. We actually started working on another record. But I think it was just like, at that point, it was like they were touring and we weren't. It was just like time to wrap it up. I think he just wanted to be like, Guided by Voices is kind of the name, the brand, the identity. But in that time we worked together, it just John and myself and Jonathan, who produced those records, just knew we could continue and do more together. It just seemed really obvious. All right. So that's the birth of eyelids is that you had some old songs that John said, let's do these. I was helping Chris record demos a long time prior. I don't, I don't remember the years. I think it was before you were even in December and before I was in Got It By Voices. Maybe. I had an eight track recorder and I think we put a couple of your songs down mm-hmm. and then we forgot about them. We all did other things. And then I can't remember why we decided this is a good idea. It was at a listening party for the last Boston Spaceships record. And everyone had left except me and Jonathan. And I said, do you remember this? And I played it. And you said, we need to do this right now. And Jonathan said, 
I want to do it too. And so I was like, all right, in two weeks, let's meet, you know, bring seven or eight songs each and let's see what we can do. And then we did that. And the three of us over a couple weekends created the first record and single. Fast forwarding, I want to get to actually hearing the new track pretty soon here. A Colossal Waste of Light, your 13th release or fourth or fifth full album, depending on how you count them. You know, after the first thing, you added uh, other people to play the rhythm tracks as opposed to you guys playing the bass and drums. Can you give a few introductory words to A Colossal Waste of Light, the new album, and Run Away Yeah in particular before we hear it? The record, it's been kind of sitting for a little while because that's the way the world works lately. But this song is, I really wanted to make a song. It was kind of cheap, tricky, and gothy at the same time. And now that I listen to it, I don't think it really is either of those things that much. But that was sort of what I was interested in. It's uh, Lyrics are all real personal. No one gets to know what they mean. And that's it. John had this really kind of eloquent guitar phrase and that was kind of open, but these really kind of cheap trick power chord choruses, these anthemic things. But I feel like you heard like a specific kind of gun clubby <laughs> Bauhausy drum beat in it, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of then framed the rest of the song. We have three guitars in our band, electric guitars, sometimes four when Peter Buck plays on a track with us. And I think we do a good job of staying out of each other's way. And I think that's what makes like getting to play on a song that John does really exciting. I think we enjoy taking a break from singing and just being able to play guitar, you know, back and forth. It just brings out different needs for each other. So I loved being able to write to his song. So just to clarify, there are three distinct guitar parts to come in. So this starting riff, that's the third thing we hear, right? Is the floaty thing, Jonathan Drew's, uh, yes, he's the ethereal one. And then I'm doing kind of the gun club. Uh-huh. And then John is doing the the like kind of folky. It's like finger picking kind of. Yeah. And I think that's one of the nice things about the band is there's not two of us, two identities that are the same in the band in terms of how we play.
I think about the church <laughs> naturally as a somebody has a lot of effects and there's at least two guitars. The fact that you're trying to establish a three guitar band, that's pretty cool. And adding one of my favorite bass players to the lineup this time, Victor Krumenacher, who is one of the first, he and uh, Jonathan Sagal slightly before him are like the reason that I have this podcast are the people that I asked first on one of my other podcasts. Hey, do you want to come? And Jonathan came and talked about philosophy with me. I like read some <laughs> Schopenhauer and then that morphed into talking to Victor on that. And then this launch with David Lowry as the first. So this is almost a camper van Beethoven product that, <laughs> that I've been doing. Oh, that's so past. cool. Yeah. We're totally honored to have him join eyelids like such a obviously influence on us we were all fans of his music with monks of doom and cameron beethoven and he just kind of mvp of this record and he just added a lot a lot of melody a lot of emotion and yeah it was it was really fun to have him there of course his instincts are very good that he can float and fly but then he can also just eighth note drive and that's fine like for whole songs i understand you did some of this record sending tracks back and forth in a way that was not necessary on the previous ones how hard is it to i feel like it's sort of the opposite of a jam band it is modular pieces i have written a guitar riff i'm gonna play it over and over in some variations and you have your other guitar riff and here is a bass riff you know that you're like building out of tinker toys as opposed to the Grateful Dead, which is the pieces are just the players and whatever they happen to do at that moment. Um, this, yeah, it, it has more to do with like television, probably, or something like that, you know, where people are trying to weave things around each other, I would think. Although I guess they were jammy too, but I don't know how structured, how much they practiced their jams, you know? There's a lot of, even though there's three guitars in it, there's quite a bit of space in our songs. And so it allows something like if Victor wants to do some kind of cool run or Polly wants on drums, wants to do something. I like doing things. And I think I kind of learned that a little bit from working with John on the Pollard stuff where I'm like, I like drum fills and partial solos that don't seem appropriate in a song. <laughs> like, you know, I just like weird energy where it's like, okay, what if it does this? And it's a little untraditional, but it creates some emotional excitement. Yeah, I actually was just listening to the Death Midget demo on YouTube and you're very fast bass playing in that, that it was almost you're trying to do a Minutemen sort of thing. That was the first. I'd never heard a bass guitar till. I mean, I'd heard a bass guitar, but I didn't really understand a bass guitar till Mike Mills and Mike Watt. Those were the two people on records where I was like, oh, that's I've never heard bass being used so frantically and melodically and counterpoint. But, you know, I was also really limited, obviously, in my abilities back then. So we were just a loud, weird band. And so you would love to be Mike Watt, but, you know, there's only one Mike Watt. And John, did you not go through a Neil Peart period or is that all just before your recording career? Yeah, totally, totally. I was probably, my first love was Bev Bevan, though, from ELO. And then Neil Peart was great, but, you know, he was kind of too great, you know, and once again, you can't really emulate that. And then you grow up a little bit and realize that it's just too much stuff. And the music you like has drummers who have just a couple drums. I mean, you like that music better. You never give up on Rush, ever. Well, that's a great attitude for the drummer to have. And especially because you're a drummer, singer, songwriter who is not attached to drums. 
I guess right. this is all working up to in this new lineup where you've delegated your bassing and drumming. You know, it'd be very easy for you to just continue to record as a three piece, but then bring in the rhythm section when you play live. But that seems antithetical to the spirit of the band that no, Chris is signing his email one fifth of eyelids. That is a band. We don't even take gigs. We're, you know, we've been asked several times, Chris and I, just to come with acoustic guitars. You know, it's a benefit and it's small. Can you just come do? And we, we say, no, we don't care about any causes. Just kidding. <laughs> um, but I'm just saying, we don't entertain that. You know, like going promotional thing without everybody. We don't even do that. Yeah, it's really... The songs are kind of, they kind of need everyone because they're built that way. Yeah, and also it's just, we're, we're having a lot of fun together like these individuals who we are. And I think it comes through. I think there's a lot of personality in what we do. One of the things that I loved right away from working with John was his drumming, which is so full of who he was. Like, I just had not experienced that where I was like, oh, there's his humors in it. His, you know, seriousness is in it, his influences. And, you know, it trickles over to our songwriting too. And I think we're just excited to hear what, other people are going to do, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm boring. I'm the least interesting member of our band. I'm really excited to see what other people are going to do and make me then learn to like it because I'm very critical of what I make until everyone does what they do on it to make me feel okay. (laughs) (laughs) So given how distinctive John's drumming is though, what went into the choice of Polly? That's just somebody you knew from the scene as opposed to, you know, your brother, Chris or somebody else. With this project, it was really about being song, being a songwriter, which you know I've been doing for a long time in a very limited way, often with different bands. And sometimes it's just me recording myself a whole bunch, and I'd done enough of that to know that things are kind of better when you allow people in and set an atmosphere. I would have played "Runaway," yeah, probably differently than Polly did, but Polly captured the song in a great way, in his own way. To me, that's what our band is, you know? It's just a matter of just putting a different hat on, I think. And I don't think I'm the greatest drummer in the universe. (laughs) I like being in bands to, as a drummer, to be part of a team arranging something. And you can't then switch over and say, well, I'm going to control two-fifths of the team, you know? Mm -hmm. I think as a songwriter, you know when things are completely not right, you know, like, you can't play 16th notes in my goth song, you know, right now or whatever. But, you know, other than that, there's a lot of interpretation that is available there. Yeah, and I feel like what everyone else, their decisions often make me rethink what I thought the song was going to be. There's a song called The Colossal Waste of Light on the new album, and I, I just couldn't crack it. And then Jonathan and John were really like, there's something there, you got to keep at it. But really, it was Polly just not playing it very psychedelic and really driving this, like the tempo went up, the beat was a little more aggressive than I think I pictured. And I was like, oh, now I love it because it's just not this like slow psychedelic number. It's just entered a more exciting world. I mean, when you listen to those early REM records, they're pretty fast. And mm-hmm. I think I think our first record, we were kind of, you know, more influenced by our love of Paisley Underground and things that were a little more psychedelic and slow. And then John came in with this song called Bound to Let You Down. And all of a sudden I was like, well, we can do anything. We can do pop, we can do rock, we can do slow, you know, ballady things. We can work with other lyricists. It just really took the tag of us off being one thing. 
I was trying to keep myself from thinking too much of the birds throughout this, just because of the way that you engineer your vocals largely and the way that they float together. And the fact that there are lots of, I don't know, is there actual, you have three guitars, you don't need a 12 string. Is that just the sound that some of you are using some of the time? Or are there actual 12 strings when Peter Buck is not in the room? There's a 12 string here or there. I'm trying to think if there's one on this record. In any case, it's not an essential part. You can have arpeggio over arpeggio and that still sounds very birdsy even if there's no actual 12 string involved yeah i don't think it's something that we lean on we're like oh we need to 12 string it up but sometimes it's undeniably I think, great i think like chris said we really there was a concept in place when we, we started doing this that we wanted to be like a kind of a psych band you know and that didn't take long for this the songwriting that we kind of naturally do and have both naturally been working on for kind of a really long time to take the forefront and become really more important to us than the genre we're in. So the 12 string would probably fall under that category too. I love the birds, but I'm not necessarily a birds emulator. It's a great soundscape that they have. If we remind anybody of them a bit, that's always (laughs) great. (laughs) So the fact that the main riff is the third thing you hear, it's not. So what was the order of operations that you had that? And then Chris came up with this... I was thinking a Devo-like thing. This you know I was in a Devo cover band with Elliot Smith? <laughs> it was Elliot Smith, Sam Coombs from Quasi, my brother and myself, and Sean Krogan were in a Devo cover band together. I am, yeah, they're one of my heroes. But then the other stuff comes in. They sort of captured that modular songwriting technique that I was talking about to the point of it sounding intentionally mechanical, whereas that's not your purpose here, that even if you introduce that, it's just an element. It's like hitting the drums in a regular pattern through a measure. It's not indicating the breakdown of uh, our humanity. There's a lot of O's and things. Are those intentional? Are those (laughs) lyrics that you just didn't bother to write? Is that something added? Like, let's get to the next section by throwing in a little nonverbal bit. I don't think about it too much. It's kind of hard to break everything down for me. I'm like, that's what happened. Well, we were obviously (laughs) also fans of like John said, there's a cheap trick kind of vibe he was going for, Mm -hmm. you know, Robin Sanders, like, you know, there's so many O's and yeahs. And Mm -hmm. I think we're not opposed to, I definitely have some yeahs and okays and hays on this record. It's kind of just in the language of it. You know, it feels good sometimes to just be like, to say like, yeah, it's about to go down instead of just saying it's about to go down. Sure. The chorus is totally dumb. Run away, yeah, like that's totally stupid. But I like it. You know, I, I wrote that, I guess, but I don't know what, why it is that. I think we're still also... Comma, yeah? Yeah, it's, yeah, we use a lot of commas and parentheses in our titles. Interestingly, you take the time to put the comma in the title, but yet it's not run space away, which is what it should be. Otherwise, it's like, I want to run away. Please give me someone, some young person who's run away from home to make my sex slave. That's what, that's how I'm interpreting this. No, I, as opposed to, I want to run a space away. This is this podcast. <laughs> well, we don't know grammar. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, we're children of not only of the American college rock underground, but we're also children of eighties education. So <laughs> we don't know, we don't know how to speak well or have grammar in our favor you speak you speak good but i I do i do feel like 
we also came from the influences, which, you know, again, of music from the 80s and 90s, where sounds creating lyrical content were around, you know, whether it was REM or the Butthole Surfers, whatever. There was like this gelatinous way of writing lyrics where sometimes it was a sound or a punctuation or something kind of tossed off that just fit rather than trying to get really precise about what the meaning is. I think we still like to be purposefully vague. You know, I think we've got a lot to say, but sometimes I I don't think we're like maybe the most direct lyricists, but it's all in there. And I talk to people all the time who get it. So that seems to be working. Well, just to return to Robert Pollard for a second, listening to all those Boston spaceship albums in a row, I realized I don't know what he's singing about, like almost ever. He has some cool phrases, but then just like move on. And he's interesting. He He's a lyrics first person. He spends probably most of his time writing in a book, writing lyrics, lyrics, and then putting the music on top of it. And we work pretty much the opposite. We're music first and then lyrics afterwards. So I think that's why sometimes it's like we in our head hear a certain amount of syllables in something. And sometimes you just got to be like, yeah, <laughs> here we go. All right. <laughs> well, and that sort of explains why you would be okay with having a whole album where you use an outside lyricist, a poet, because that's not like where the ego lies in this. It is the constructing the musical tapestry. And like, I've heard about people like Peter Gabriel who like refuses to, come up with the actual lyrics until the very last possible second because it's like so not the point. Right. It seems that's that's the opposite of the extreme from the Robert Pollard model where it seems like you're more on that side than the Pollard side. Or is it different for the each of you that, John, you're a little more... I feel like that's something that's kind of evolving, you know? Maybe the first album, it wasn't as important to me because I thought we were doing a psych band and it sort of just needed to be an atmosphere of that. But then... Ultimately, you keep pushing at it. You kind of have to be saying something interesting to yourself. And I think yeah. I've been writing confessional type lyrics, you know, as boring as that may be for some people to listen to in my whole career as a songwriter. I mean, you know, career is not the right word, but this little project I'm doing with my life. I think sometimes inspiration comes, man, it's hard to talk about this stuff. I quit this podcast. <laughs> That's all right. We have a backup. We have two of you. We have redundancy built in. Yeah, it is hard to talk about. But I do think the one thing that we got from working with Larry Beckett, and excuse me if I'm speaking for you, John, but I do feel... I obviously have nothing to say. I feel like you thought that it kind of showed us how important it was for us to kind of honor the lyrics you know, it was really interesting to work with Larry and to have him open up his entire history and have us see what resonated with us. But it was also got us, I think, quite excited to realize, like, give equal weight to the lyrics, I think, that maybe we were always kind of like, well, that'll come later. Yeah, I think we'd been spending, both of us probably spent a good deal of time in our lives as songwriters, cheaply downplaying our lyrics. Yes being a little insecure about them. But then when we gave it all away, I think we both realized that it's still part of what we like to do. Even though I might come up with the guitar line first, I won't just put any words to the top of it, you know? Right. It has to resonate at some level. And sometimes that starts with just phonetics. And then sometimes it starts with, you know, a real meaningful phrase, a confession, like I say, or, you know, it's always a little different. 
I think it is really important. And I do think we both put, even though we might be a little flowery with our lyrics in terms of like, you know, it's not super direct. Sometimes I, there's a lot in there that I feel like I'm giving away personally. Like it still feels vulnerable. It still feels a little dangerous. So it's, I think part that's maybe hardest because you're kind of pouring it out. Well, some balance is nice. So, I mean, having a a super catchy chorus with this simply delivered lyric is balanced by the anvil of truth will come for me and you that you got that in the same song. So yeah, that's a good lyric. Oh, really? I don't know. It sounds terrible when he says it just not like that. Well, that's why you get to sing it. You get to, there's two of us here. Let me stop for just a moment and tell you about another podcast. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names, maybe you've heard most of their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally beloved and important? With his show, The 500, comedian Josh Adam Myers digs into all the breakups and breakdowns, the partying, the sex and the sorrow that went into the making of all this incredible art. A few years back, Josh realized he'd been listening to the same four albums over and over forever. So he decided to go through Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time to expand his horizons and bone up on some of the classics he wanted to know more about. But he's not going on this journey alone. Each week, he digs into a different album from the list with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians as guests talking about why they love a particular record and how that music has impacted their lives. I'm talking comedian Patton Oswalt, two-time NBA star Karen Butler-Lunell, and Sonic Youth bassist Kim Gordon. So join them as they work their way from 500 down to one. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get the second song out there. So Seagull's into submission from 854, 2014. So this is a Chris song, or was this written together? I know you're singing lead on it, but... It was weird. I had written this for a band that Jim, who played bass in Island for us, he was in a band with me called The Needful Longings with a couple other people in Portland. And I had that song, and no one could crack it in that band. They just couldn't, we just couldn't understand it as a band. It wasn't the right group of people to take it on. But I knew there was something there. And I just held on to it. And when that band dissolved, it was one of the songs I brought in. And it was really fun because John was sitting behind the drum set and he just started playing that kind of, I don't know, is it a disco beat? What is that? Yeah, it's like a dance movie. That's 16th note hi-hat. Something I would have never thought of. And it just was like, there it is. I love it. And it just, and then Jonathan's solo. It's still this way. Often our first ideas are the ones that make it to the record. I don't feel like we over labor. Everyone's instincts are really pretty quick and spot on. So it was that way with this. Also, a lot of my previous bands were really like I shouted a lot in them. You know, it's just like I was in bands that were kind of aggressive with aggressive players. And even though we can get loud and aggressive, it was kind of, I felt like one of the few pretty songs I'd ever sang in my life up to that point. And we were also in the studio and I, or, you know, we were rehearsing this over those two weekends. And I said, what should the song be about? And John said, seagulls. And I said, in the submission. And I wrote it down. And then I went and wrote the lyrics about just a couple on the beach, just bumming out and seagulls <laughs> kind of trying to swoop down at them and create havoc. And they're just trying to get back to land so that they can break up. And it came together really quick. 
And so for me, that was a real success. That had not been my history with writing music up to that point. That song kind of, you can get a lot of what Eyelids is about with that song. nice to see how this style has evolved over time because this also in fact this is way more birdsy than the last one the last one had a much more 80s vibe you know i didn't even mention the chorus that has i assume it's jonathan's guitar but that sounds like a synth that really just like oh this is super 80s like in a good way we've got some good guitar there's very few keyboards on our records but they can our guitars can sound kind of synthy it's pretty exciting but this one you know is more traditional And as we'll hear when we hear your older thing, when did you stumble, Chris, on this vocal style that we're going to do? It's going to be much more breathy than you were in the 90s. (laughs) I just wanted to try it. You know, it was so funny when I was in Guided by Voices and I met Tobin Sprout. Like, he's saying up here like this. And then you meet him and he's like, hey, how's it going? 
And they're like, whoa, that's weird. And John kind of had a singing style that was also a little different than his talking voice. Mm-hmm. And I never really liked my singing voice that much. I'd never tried to do something else with it. So I was like, maybe this is kind of what I should have been doing all this time. It's like just a different range and a different thing. It kind of suits me. It just took a long time to find it. Bob sings in a British accent. You know, it's like I just liked all people just kind of trying something different. It was, it was just kind of freeing. I mean, has this experience of having the two of you been, I know, so my last dual singer songwriter band, which has been over for almost a decade now, but it was very much, I write stuff that's kind of all over the map. And I met this friend of mine, you know, had a style, like a flowing guitar style. And so like, okay, well I'll choose songs of mine that can be adapted to that. It was kind of letting the other person focus, not determined, but like focus what you're going to do. How has that been in terms of working with each other? Like, do you feel like there are still songs, John, that would go on a perhaps album, but would not go on this or you just... Yeah, I mean, I think so. But then Misuse got onto this record, which is really what would probably go on a perhaps record. And so maybe not so much. You know, I think that was kind of what, yeah, what we were talking about earlier. We thought we knew what this was going to be, and it was kind of just a very narrow alleyway of rock. And then it just turned out that this band kind of capable of doing whatever you bring to it. Yeah, it's been pretty cool to be like on that Larry Beckett album. There's one Tim Buckley song that they had written but never released, and Larry slid over like the uh, sheet music. You know, then he's like, "Here it is," and we're like, "Nope, we're not going to touch that. We're not going to be the band that does that." And then. The record was going on so well and we got confidence, we decided we should. But to be able to do like kind of a 60s piano, it's a ballad, I guess you would mm-hmm. say. And then have a song like One, Two, Three with the same lyricist, but have something that's just so noisy and relentless and warlike. You know, I think we just realized we can kind of do whatever we want. Everyone's just really good at listening to what somebody's bringing to it and being sensitive to it. And there's times where I've been like, you know, it doesn't need another guitar here. You know, I'll just wait a bit. That was another thing in this band. I'd been in bands where you play guitar the entire time from the first note to the end. And in this band, there's periods where we just create space. And that was also a different way, just like with the singing, a different way to learn to play just to be like, just sit out for a little bit and hear the other things and then come in and make a little statement and go out again. It's been cool. Is some of that a matter of when you are singing so that you can do your intro and then you can sing your lines and then you can fill in the middle? It happens in songs that I don't sing on with John, like Don't Come Around Here. I do like a little intro and then I just kind of sit back while John and Jonathan are playing because it's just, it didn't need anything else. I think it's kind of fun. It's kind of freeing to just be like, all right, I'm going to have 15 seconds here or 20 seconds to go, like to have a sip of drink or something, and then just kind of listen and enjoy it. It's like, I love it. I love playing John's songs, you know? Well, more about seagulls. So like the approach with the lyrics that you said, you've spit this out pretty quickly. It sounds a frustrated, tired, the chorus is just, please leave. Oh, you know, this is not a, a happy song, but it's draped with so much nice, pretty guitar work that you get to deliver that. Any thoughts about putting those two things together? I mean, I guess that's an old tradition of sort of mope rock of we can have very depressing lyrics, but nice presentation. 
I think Mope Rock is right, probably. <laughs> no, I mean, I think we like things that kind of walk that line of sorrow and buoyancy. Like, there are certain bands, like, you listen to a certain song, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm destroyed. This is talking to me. I feel it. And then when you're doing all right, that same song has a different power. You're, it's empowering, and it feels majestic. And I think a lot of our songs have that kind of nice window into both worlds. In terms of the three guitars playing off each other this time, who's doing the sludgy rhythm stuff? Is that you, Chris? Or, you know, as opposed to the, da, 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 da. you know, there's two arpeggio players here. I'm playing, I'm playing picky things. In okay. There. Jonathan is playing like the basic chords. Okay. So he's not the designated lead player just because he has more pedals than you guys. Exactly. So I'm doing the phrase that comes in and out. The da, 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 da. Okay. That's me. And then John is doing an arpeggiated melodic thing in the verses. Right. That really shouldn't be there, but we just did it and it sounds fine. Yeah. And so I'm not playing in those sections there. And Jonathan's laying down the, the meat and potatoes part of it. And then Jonathan does the solo and I do the two really dumb bends at the end of the song where it's that's me, you know, just being like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to get a little seagull Z with it, you know, but part of it was, I thought it was kind of humorous and amusing. I think we are not afraid of having something weird come into a pretty song and break it up a bit. So, well, I mean, at that moment, I thought there were actually four guitars that you were just adding that as an extra effect, but now you've rearranged it. There's somebody getting off one part and getting on the other and you still feels like, you know, what you heard before is still there. I guess the same sort of thing. I can't remember which of these songs where you add, I always listen for the tambourine, the thing that I want to have a 16th note somewhere in there, but we can't do that live because we don't have an extra person. We don't have a Gene Clark stand in the middle just to do that. Right. <laughs> um, oh, I wish we had a Gene Clark. Anna, but, yeah. John's our tambourine in the studio master, just tasteful. He knows when it needs it, when it doesn't. But thanks, Chris. It's fun. I love it. The previous song, it's only four minutes. It could be if it was really a church song, it might be six minutes. It might puff out. You have yeah. a lot of guitarists who could do things that could fill the space. But this one is just over less than three minutes. I think there's only one chorus, right? It's just, please leave. Oh, and then you play the riff more and that's it. Was it just like, let's put something like that at the beginning of the record to just to give you a taste of something and not, why not more song? Does this, when it goes, when you play this live, does it go on longer or is this always just? There, there's two things that happened with it. One is that, again, we came up in, you know, when the Dharma Bums were putting out their records and when I was in a band called Sprinkler that was on Sub Pop. So we're talking like early 80s. I mean, late 80s, early 90s. And you're learning the right songs. You could get so intoxicated with a riff that you go back and listen to our first singles and they're like five and a half minutes long. And you're just like, why did we do that? It's like you had an intro riff and then the rest of the band would come in while you play the intro riff. And then you would sing a verse. Then you go back into the intro riff, a second verse, pre-chorus, chorus, back into the intro riff, the bloop, bloop, solo, outro. And it just by the time you're like, you didn't need all that. It just, it's like, it was just a product of the time, I feel like when we were learning to write. And you listen to those Birds records. And it's amazing. You're like, 
or the first love record or whatever. And they're like, those songs are barely two and a half minutes, but they don't feel short. It's all there. And I think the other thing I was working with Pollard at one point, I asked him, I said, like, why do you decide he's not really into bridges? He's not really into outros. He's kind of just like, and here's the thing, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, out. We didn't mention that those records are 16 songs long and 34 minutes or something like on average. Yeah, and I just was like, why write a part that's not exciting, but it feels like this is the standard. This is the way music has been forever. I got to work on this bridge before the solo now. Well, also think about how many songs have been written in the past where the third verse is the first verse sung again. It's because you've created this magic texture and people want to live in it for a while. I mean, but, you know, just rewind. <laughs> yeah, I, it was funny. I remember Scott McCoy from the Minus Five, like there was a song, I can't remember what song, but he was just like, I can't believe it's over. He's just like, that's... He got kind of mad at us. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that, I think it works. I think also, you know, I grew up with things like the Buzzcocks and Husker Du and things that were Minutemen who were way shorter than what we do even. And I think that if it needs it, it needs it. I mean, there's songs sometimes on our record that are longer, like one, two, three. It's like things spread out, things get a little weird, and they just need the length. But I still feel like I don't know how to write songs, which is exciting. It's like, I just don't know what's going to happen. We just recorded earlier this week, and it was the first time where I was like, hey, I have a song. Let's just kind of try to learn it in the studio together. And we did. And it was really exciting. So I still feel like there's still things we haven't tried, things we're figuring out. And it's nice not to feel like, all right, back to the machine again. Got to do another great six songs this year and the eyelids motif. It's like, I just don't know what's going to happen. It's cool. While we're on the track of you not knowing how to write songs, let's continue. Let's force you to go back I said I wanted a song from each of you from your pre-Eyelids days so we could talk a little about the 90s and things. So you had chosen from your band Svelte, the follow-up to Sprinkler from your 1996 album Souvenir, Shrunken Head. Can you say a couple words about that before we hear it? You know, Sprinkler was kind of one of those bands that we jammed things out to make grunge riffs and our thing, you know, very kind of moody riff-based stuff. And so Svelte, was less of that because I was the only guitar player. And I, I was a bass player originally, so guitar was still, and these guys laugh at me all the time, is still a unknown world. I don't know scales. I can't do a bar chord. Every time I have to do a lead, it's still like, I look at it geometrically. I'm like, three, two, one, four, two, diagonal down. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and I know as a songwriter, it'd be easier maybe if I knew how to resolve like a chord instead of search around for it. But there's something exciting also about having those limitations. So Svelte was the first time where I couldn't rely on other people who were better guitar players than me to lean on them. I had to deliver. And I, I feel like the album was kind of better for that. But it's also interesting. Eyelids is the first band I've been in that I've ever had a song that I've done have backing vocals. My whole life, I had to wait to have harmonies in something till Eyelids. So I don't know. I saw you guys yelling in unison in uh, in that death midget 1984 clip that's on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, doing like uh, naked Reagan covers and stuff. Uh, yeah, well, you know, being in your parents' garage in '85 is a lot different than recording a record, you know. But I just think that uh, 
it was, I kind of had a, still a bit of a hangover of the type of music I was in love with at the time, which was pretty aggressive. Again, college underground or punk rock or grunge or whatever you call it. But by the time that album came out, it was pretty out of step with what was going on at the time. You know, things were getting more melodic and quieter and more folky at times. Like at least what I was listening to, you know, it was starting to turn that way. But I thought that it was an, kind of a catchy song. I think it's maybe the best song that I wrote from my earlier part of my career. You know, before I play Shrunken Head, I'll insert one more clip from Seagulls. So I feel like the legacy of alternative rock, as opposed to Bird's, you know, 60s stuff, is in that fourth chord. that chord like that that is something that you would find you're not like oh i need to go from the minor second you know to the fifth to the you know you're not thinking in those traditional music theory terms one four five kind of it's it's more fine stuff you know that's the alternative rock or hard rock way of writing songs is well, usually this is bar chords, but I guess playing bass is similar enough to just find something on the neck. What if I go up three frets instead of four frets? How does that sound? Oh, that's cool. That's a little unexpected turn. I don't know what I did. I don't care. You know, I can't. Yeah, we like weird chords, you know, in a pop setting. It's kind of fun to do that. Yeah. That song has a weird minor and major thing in it. I still don't understand. I don't think it's right. <laughs> it is. I think we're playing major and minors against each other and not in seagulls. So here's Shrunken Head. We'll get to right after this your weird major minor blindfold follies thing. But here's Shrunken Head.
So another even shorter song. We're really going to get this out of there. And also very riff driven. I like this initial guitar riff that you came up with and like, and then we'll just answer it by smacking on that. And the, uh, the chorus is popping. This could be a, this could have been a hit. Yeah. Except we were on a label that no one knew. And also 96, that wasn't really a sound. I think people were, there was like emo things coming in and kind of more expressive guitar playing, less like pummeling things. I remember we played a show with Modest Mouse right when they were first starting out. Mm. And the bass player came up and he was like, you guys are no good, but that last song you did is great. You could write more of those. That's kind of the era we were in. Like people were like, what these loud, short bursting, people were starting to kind of get more expressive in their playing, or it was less about like this kind of more aggressive thing. I don't know. That's what I felt at the time. Like I felt like we were getting on these bills where I saw things kind of progressing in a more experimental nature, you know, with drag city stuff and, you know, maybe some of the K records stuff. But yeah, it wasn't meant to be. Let me play the some of the guitar solo. So that's a cool scale. You say you don't know what you're doing, but it like has a nice little Arabic flavor. I have no context. I'm like, I just learned it. And then I draw six lines on a piece of paper so I don't forget it. And I write five, three, two, one on the different strings. You know, I don't go like, you know, A to, you know, D sharp to whatever. I just like have numbers so I don't forget it. I think my instincts are good. It's just, it doesn't come easy. Let's just say that. I'm really glad I'm in a band where I only have to write six or seven good songs a year instead of 13 because it just takes me longer because of my limitations. But I feel like then there's nothing that I've written that I don't like. Well, and is there anything else to say about how I played those two songs, the beginnings of them to my wife? And she's like, that's the same person singing that you're doing my alternative rock voice. Most of the things that I listen to nowadays are not the things that I listened to when I was younger. You know, like I don't, break out a tad record you know what i mean as much as i love it in my head it's just kind of not where i'm at so it was a new beginning for me i hadn't sang since 96 in a band right so it was like i didn't know what i used to sing like but i just like it felt like it fit the song style it was kind of nice to hear that i could sing in a weird way instead of just kind of push i mean I also used to lose my voice every second show, you know, especially when you're on tour, it could be really embarrassing. So I can still get quite aggressive with certain eyelid songs, but it's just kind of nice to just be like, ah, you know, like to me, it doesn't seem that different. I get it, but it's just like, it's been me all along. So I'm just like, I don't, you know, I'm like, ah, it's just there. I mean, there are people who make weirder decisions in terms of like, oh yeah, I was this person and now I'm this person musically and you can't understand it. You're like, wait, you were like some industrial musician and now you're in a Steely Dan cover band? Like what happened? You know, and they're like, oh, my taste changed. It's just kind of like, it's what suited the songs. John, any thoughts about you finding, literally finding your voice that when I was watching old Dharma Bums footage, you were sort of, in the Bill Berry role, you know, the drummer who is singing, but not at least that I could tell was it usually the guitarist who sort of had the main 
backing vocal and then you were adding some echoes or some other. Uh, yeah, it was very rem I did a lot of making up my own little line or phrase that I would sing in the background, which is totally REM. As opposed to trying like a solid three-part harmony block. And I'd been encouraged to do that backup singing by Jeremy Wilson, the singer of that band. We had a bad band before Dharma Bums called uh, Perfect Circle, which was a REM song too. So, you know, we were very much influenced by all that. And he he was like, I have in my band, I have to have lots of singers. So we, you know, he got me singing. I found that for me, it was easiest to like monitor myself because we had terrible PAs. And if I sang kind of high and got out of the way of everything that was kind of chugging in the middle. So I ended up singing a lot of falsetto parts, kind of weird falsetto-y things. Got comfortable in that world and kind of sang that way a lot over my years of writing things. So that's, I guess that's just a, a tool, you know? Well, let's use that to introduce... The Maroons song that we picked. So Blindfold Follies is the one you picked from You're Gonna Ruin Everything 2002, which is the only album by that band. Is that right? Or you had an EP or something? Uh, or? No, there was another one. Oh, okay. What was the other one called? It was not on the streaming services. So I didn't, I did not hunt <laughs> yeah, it Yeah, it, it was on a pretty small label here. Any words to say about Blindfold Follies before we hear that and we can still dwell? No, on I, I think it's funny when Chris asked, said we we're going to do this podcast, I was and he said, I need a song from you, from your past, from this and that. And I thought, well, that's not very interesting. My songwriting hasn't changed very much. <laughs> that was my first reaction was I, I listened to some of those songs. And I'm like, I'm still just kind of fussing away at the same things. I remember somebody once told me talking about Afghan Wigs. It was a band that we kind of grew up around. My band opened for a bunch of times. And yeah. I remember thinking that, man, all their songs kind of sound the same. After a few years of records, I was like, I don't really understand them. And then my friend Rebecca was like, no, you know, Greg Dooley's working on this perfect thing that's kind of his deal. And he's always getting nearer to this thing. And it's funny to look back at my own output and kind of think that I just always kind of like the same stuff. I'm trying to make songs that I want to hear in the world. You know what I mean? Like I have things that I like and it's harmonies and it's twinkly guitars a lot of the time. And yeah, I'm just saying it's, I don't really know what makes it so distinctive. You know, it's just sort of this compulsion.
John told me that life's too short to not write catchy pop songs. I think it suits him, you know? Yeah. But it's funny to analyze all of this because it's really, for me, the process about pulling your brain is really mostly about pulling your brain out of it and going with instinct and what you like. And what I like keeps showing up again and again over the course of all these years, you know, since like the late 80s, which could mean I'm stuck or it could mean that it's fine that I'm kind of whittling away at this thing, you know? I understand that. Like, I've definitely reached the point with my songwriting of like, I've already written something with pretty much that same chord progression. Why even bother? So you have to either like turn more of my brain off or be more self-forgiving or just have enough time go by. We started just throwing capos in weird places just to get different voicings. Yes, or do a detuning. Just let, let's do drop D. Okay, do do something. Turns out though that there is still plenty of inspiration if you, even if you're just fooling yourself. And it's, that's what's kind of lucky about both of us. We don't know what note. Like once you leave the major chords that you kind of know down there, E and E minor and A, right. And go up on the fretboard somewhere. I don't, I'm not really tracking where I'm at. I'm like, well, if I can sing to this here and it's a melody that I think is pretty and worth trying to share with people, then that's all I need. That's all I need to know. And so it does, it does work to kind of fool yourself. Like, oh, wander over to the piano, even though you're not really trained at the piano and try and take the chords you were just playing and see what happens over there. And maybe the rhythm changes a little and you get inspired about something new. And that's just, it's just inspiration, you know, that's what you're looking for. So is, is Jonathan Drews the designated music theory guy that, uh, you know, if, if, if somebody had to write sheet music for string players or something, would that be the guy, would he be the guy you tell to do that? Yeah, probably Victor. Yeah. But Jonathan is like a musical chameleon. He's really good at just being different where John and myself, I think have our interests and our style of playing and we kind of push and pull each other different directions you know with our own songs because we're quite different songwriters which is kind of also what's exciting about eyelids jonathan he just adds an this layer that is just elevates it you know again like the beginning of runaway yeah his ethereal thing is such a statement it just immediately puts you in a mood and another person would have been like oh i need to you know come up with a phrase here or uh, you know i gotta put my stamp on it and instead it's like he created this thing that like is it a guitar is it a keyboard what is this is it melodic is it atmospheric but then he'll just on the next song he'll just play the most beautiful lead he's just got really good instincts and i wish i knew what deal with what devil he made <laughs> but he he's really so essential to bringing out the m- melodic Things so some things I think that we write that may be a little more fractured, um, if that makes sense with us coming up with our parts mm-hmm. together. He's a, we also allow him the position of last say a lot of times. Like you know, Chris and I all struggle with our tune maybe and our you know being insecure about oh I don't know if this is working or whatever. And we let a lot of times let Jonathan just figure it out in the end because he's not bringing in full songs, but he kind of is helping us finish things in a big way. <laughs> And some of that is by adding a really great part. And some of it is by saying, "Mm, I don't know, I'm not hearing that, you know, or why are you doing that only once? Why can't we do that twice? Or we just kind of give him this extra power to be more than just a guy who plays the guitar. And it's really been great. He's a good editor, a really good editor. Yeah. So it's kind of this weird, cool safety mechanism. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty charming. (laughs) To have his his, uh, talents in there, I think, on that stuff. 
I mean, I like the idea if a band exists long enough, you sort of let everybody do whatever they have in them that, yeah. uh, you know, even though this is founded on you two sort of playing off each other and it sounds like Chris, that John's sort of more consistent style gave you, like I was describing with my own experience, something to gravitate toward, or at least the fact that you had both discussed, like this is the style of music that we're doing in this band that, that gave it something to start with. But then the longer you're around, I don't know. Do you, do you see like maybe Victor gets to sing lead on the next one? Cause he brought in a thing or are these, are the other three members like, Oh, Oh no, we don't want to disrupt the beautiful chemistry that you guys have. I, I think they don't want to disrupt it. But the thing is that you never know. I think the nice thing about what John and myself have is, you know, I think we've kind of got to play against type at times, you know, like I've got to do this kind of more fragile, gentle thing at times. And John's got to do some pretty ugly guitar phrases. And mm-hmm. um, it's fun to play music and do different things and and have it kind of hit. It's a very fortunate place to be that you end, I don't, you I end don't, up giving each other permission to do things. In a weird way, you know, mm-hmm. like in a way, it's like really being by being a club and a team and a band, you're saying that we're this solid entity. And then there's all these things that could bubble up inside of that. And there will be times when something that might frighten me is Chris's wheelhouse. And so I'm like, oh, well, I'm just going to this is my permission to now play angular guitar. And actually, I'm pretty good at angular guitar. I just don't write angular guitar songs, you know, right. so it's like you just kind of keep pushing each other back and forth and giving each other permission to try new things. It's great. So let's wrap up by introducing one of these songs with the Larry Beckett lyrics from The Accidental Falls, your last full album, 2019. Ceremony was the one you picked. John, you wrote this or you wrote, or you both wrote this I together? Wrote the song. Okay. Larry wrote the lyrics down, but a lot of the lyrics are based on his wife, Laura, what she would, her review of their wedding, I believe, what her moments were for her. And I think it's just the most beautiful. It's like if somebody told me I was going to be writing like a wedding song kind of thing, I would have, it's just such a gorgeous statement. I'm still super moved by it. (laughs) This song, uh, just what the words that the, whatever percentage is Laura and whatever percentage is Larry, but the way it, it just came off the page, I just thought it was such a real and sort of, you know, marriage is a difficult thing to do. It just starts off kind of in this funny vows, who can keep a vow. It was interesting because we weren't sure when we were doing this record with Larry what it was going to be. I think we were nervous. And originally, we're going to, let's pick a few songs and maybe do an EP. Because, you know, we weren't sure how we would, we'd find things that would resonate or we'd be able to interpret. And it was really fun to see what John picked and what I picked. You know, we looked at the same things and sometimes John didn't see what I saw and vice versa. But there's an undeniable beauty and power to what John created out of Larry's lyrics that are also kind of, it's haunted, but it's also very celebratory. Mm -hmm. And I think you can just feel it. It's like whenever we get to play that, I'm just always moved too. I can feel it. Just to touch on this before we get out of here, it seems like you use this band as a as a networking mechanism as much as everything that you, you know, you've got this guest lyricist, which this is just his notebooks. This, these lyrics could be a decade or two old. Well, he, oh, yeah. he came to us. Older. I mean, it was funny. Our kids were friends in school and he was like, oh, you're a musician. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm a lyricist. And then he went and listened to eyelids and freaked out because he is, he is a contemporary of, 
Buffalo Springfield and the birds. And he, you know, wrote most of Tim Buckley's lyrics and he was just in that scene. And he was so excited about, he was just kind of hadn't heard modern music like this and said, if ever you want to, you know, collaborate, you know, new lyrics, old lyrics, we didn't know what that would be like. We were like, oh shit, this is all of a sudden a new opportunity, but do we want to take it? And I think it was a really great media of mind. Larry totally let us frame musically. He didn't have one suggestion in terms of what we were doing musically over his lyrics that went from the 60s to now. And then you've had several other collaborations of getting like, let's get another singer in that John Cameron Mitchell of Hedwig and the Angry Itch and many TV shows fame. I was just on another podcast. We talked about the Sandman and I was kind of, why does they include an entire song of him singing in drag in this fantasy show? Well, because he's a good singer and they had him. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta use him. Yeah. We've known John for a long time and he was in town shooting shrill and we were playing a show and we were like, you want to do some songs? He's like, yeah, let's do some songs. So we did some Lou Reed songs and a Bowie cover and a Hedwig and Angry Inch song. And afterwards he was like, that's fun, babe. Let's record. Why don't we go and record it, babe? <laughs> and I'm like, sure. So it was like a month later, really quick. We just learned three songs with him in the studio with Peter Buck producing again. And it raised money for his mom's Alzheimer care. That was quite expensive. You know, we've done shows with him in Athens where, you know, we're playing and then he comes up and we backed him for a whole show. And I don't know, it's just fun to, and music's fun and the people in it are fun. So it's fun to let go and just be like, all right, I just want to play now. And now I get to sing and now I get to collaborate or I write a song with a different vocalist in mind. It's fun to not be so uptight about, I need to be heard. Yes, and I will I will point folks at you guys doing REM covers with Peter Buck on the stage with you, which is crazy. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, I heard of you guys because of I had Jay Gonzalez on the show, and so I was just listening to everything he'd done, and you had done a, like, if you were going to add a keyboardist, <laughs> I guess if he's in town at the moment, then <laughs> why not? Yeah, we did a single where we wrote songs for each other. It was really fun, you yeah. know? Like, these people are soulmates, and it's fun to... Like we did a record where I had these post-punk songs that were really fun to play, but I didn't want to sing them. And I was like, let's get Gary Jarman from the Cribs to sing it. He's from Northern England and he's the real deal. And he killed it. And it was like, all right, so that was that. Now what do we want to do? You know, it's, it's fun. And we, we put out a lot of stuff and we just want to have fun with it. And part of the fun is just getting to work with people we admire, you know, our heroes. So the upside of not having like a label that is regimenting how <laughs> we have to wait three years for another release or what, whatever. I don't know what the logic last was when the labels were a we real thing. Two more records, <laughs> two more records already. Yeah. A, a double and a single that we're finishing out. It's just, it's fun to create and we're lucky that people. Yeah. It's cool. It's cool when the music industry collapses because then <laughs> nobody knows what to do. So they'll let you do whatever. Yeah, exactly. That's why we put out, you know, yeah, flexi, there's no, flexi discs. There's no right answer anymore. You know, it's like, oh, okay. When flexi disc is a currency, then we'll know we're doing well. Thanks to, to both of you for doing this and literally to both of you, because I'm not used to the only duos I've had on before have been husband wife teams where like right. they're inseparable. And the fact that Chris is like, can I bring John on? And then I started, you know, because eyelids, the fact that you present it as a band means that it's a little faceless and it it doesn't help me that, you know, you've got your videos where your cartoons or your 
uh, paper mache heads. Like, I don't know what you guys already look like. Why are you giving me these caricature versions when I want to, you know, label the people, John, Paul, George, and Ringo before you bring on the cartoon versions, you know, to actually then drill in and like, okay, what is John solo style? How does he contribute to this? What is Chris's? Who is singing which? Like, you know, I feel like I get to unravel a little puzzle that I don't normally get on these things. So that was fun. Appreciate it. This is a long pond for you. We just wanted to hurt you. And it's been a long, uh, about nine years ago, we met an old friend of yours who said, Hey, you know, what would be funny <laughs> is, you know, in nine years, you'll do this podcast and just be two of you and have him have to do all the heavy lifting. Well, this whole podcast is just a long con to get you to listen to my music. And you already just did. So there you go. <laughs> there we go. Circle of life. All right. Here it is. Ceremony from the Accidental Falls, 2019. Thank you.
Thanks so much to Chris and John. Their new record, A Colossal Waste of Light, is getting great reviews. The title track from that is in my head constantly, although it goes right into the psychedelic furs ghost in you, so I'm not sure where one starts and the other stops in my little mindscape. In any case, musicofeyelids.com. And I have in the blog post accompanying this at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com put links to several of the other projects that we referred to. So you can see these gentlemen as young punks. The next interview that I have recorded is with Ivan Julian, a wonderful guitarist who rose to fame as a member of Richard Hell and the Voidoids, a classic punk band. This week, I'm recording one with Peter Case, who I'm very, very excited to talk to. Just a first-rate singer-songwriter all the way back to his days with the Plimsolls. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. You can find all the links to do that at the various sites at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. There's a playlist on Spotify for this podcast that has all the songs that I cover in all the episodes in order, even ones that I'm in the process of working out. So to be very up to date and prepared to hear these episodes, go follow that playlist, Nakedly Examined Music, on Spotify. I would love your support. You could do that at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic which will get you ad-free episodes as well as a little bit of bonus content and the notes for all of my recent episodes with the song structures, the lyrics, thoughts that I did not have time to articulate in these interviews. Or if you're already listening to the Nakedly Examined Music Podcast on Apple Podcasts, there should be a subscribe button there that will let you sign up to pay me a little something every month and that will get you a subscription not only to the ad-free feed of this podcast, but to two of my other podcasts, Philosophy versus Improv and Pretty Much Pop, a Culture Podcast, both of which you should check out, even if you don't want to give me any money. Times are hard, I know. It's all cool. Most importantly, keep on musicin'. Till next time, this is Mark Winston, my next time.